Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking. Welcome to episode 174 of the Modern Woodworkers uh, (laughs) podcast. Today we have five questions with Chris Gochner. Chris, we're going to hit you right off in the in the beginning here. How did you get into woodworking? Well, I um, probably high school shop. Um, although when that, when that was a oh, thing, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It, it actually here it still is. There's there's still oh. uh, quite a bit of high school that that half shop programs, but. Um, actually, I guess I have to go back before that. Probably when I was about fourteen, I I did get quite into skateboarding and um, mm. started you know building some of my own just out of you know with a jigsaw. Um, and and then <clears throat> high school shop served as a good opportunity to have access to some better equipment than I had. But um, but the teacher would you know require us to do some some projects before we could build our skateboard. So. Um, <laughs> You know, I remember doing well. I built a uh, a couple benches when I was in high school. For Sitting my, benches. Yeah. See, so I'm from a pretty large family. Um, Ten. Uh, my parents and eight kids. Okay. Um, and I was number two, and so the family grew. Um, we had a kind of an old farm table uh, with with benches. Um, but as the family grew, the need for bigger benches came along. <laughs> and so when I was in high school, my folks commissioned me to build a couple, which I did. And to this day, we, we, you know, I go over there every Sunday, the family gathers and we still sit at those benches. So that would have been, you know, I don't know, 40, 45 years ago, <laughs> a while ago. That's a decent bench to take that much. Uh, I, I I don't mean it uh, disparagingly, but that much abuse be, of being sat on for yeah, four years. It, it's yeah, for sure. Seen, seen a lot of use. <laughs> it's got many years to go, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, to move on to question number two, what is your favorite tool? Um, my table saw. <laughs> what type of table saw do you have? I, I have a Delta Unisaw with a Unifence. <clears throat> And anyone that doesn't have a Unifence doesn't know what they're missing. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know um, anyone who has a Unifence who doesn't agree with that statement. And I know very few people who don't have a Unifence who do agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, anyway. after, after all your speak about specialty planes and, and all these hand tools, the Delta Unisaw. Yeah. I mean, I know they're, I mean, it's yeah. robust and, and, yeah. and yeah. unstoppable. But, yeah. No, yeah. it, it is, it's the center of my shop. I mean, that thing runs hours and hours and hours every day. <clears throat> it's probably 30 years old, bought it new. Every time I push that button, it's turned on in 30 years. I think I've only replaced the Arbor bearings maybe once. The motor's never been touched. Wow. Um, that's a so, saw. yeah, that's a saw. That's, that's well, yeah, absolutely. yeah, and and like I say, it <clears throat> it's just like an extension of the hand, you know. I just I'm so comfortable around it. I you know I do all sorts of joinery and whatnot on it, and it's I, I at the college we have all saw stops. Um, I mean, we have 
some Altendorf panel saws and things like that, but we've got probably four or five <clears throat> saw stops. Um, they're good saws, and of course the safety feature is is a real uh, asset, but um, they're not a unisaw <laughs> <laughs> in, in my book. But uh, <clears throat> I'll be in, careful. In in the in, in the teaching environment, have you ever had any any students with no, mishaps with tools? No, 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 no. Good to um, hear. No, never. Actually, yes. A <laughs> <laughs> handsaw. Oh, and, and it was actually almost really problematic. So this those are those are built in with flesh sensing technology. <laughs> well, he, he he was you know he had his finger up there guiding the saw and it kind of chattered on him and it cut his hand and everything was fine until he looked at it and then he just keeled over he got faint and, and uh, concrete floor and he just dropped to the ground and he, he's lucky that you know he kind of hit his back first because it had been head first he could have killed himself so oh, my God. oh yeah just, i mean wow and he was out he's on the ground he's out we had to raise his feet up and uh, get blood to his head and, <laughs> and then send him off to an insta care for stitches but so no, there's there's never been a mishap on a machine, but but we had a near disaster with a handsaw. <laughs> More to the the to the the sight of blood than <laughs> right the right the, the actual severity of the injury. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fair, fair. <laughs> so, who has influenced you the most in your woodworking? Um. Well, so that's a that's a funny question. Uh, not a funny question, but, um, <clears throat> you know, you probably want me to say some big name woodworker. No. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I can do that. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've always admired and respected uh, Krenov work and, and, and his use of beautiful woods and complimenting woods and that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> I've always admired what Thomas Moser has done, um, being a real practical, craftsman artisan just the successfulness of his his operation i've i've admired what moser has done um in reality well, yeah oh, but who really yeah so um <clears throat> i was probably 16 years old and i went up to this park city arts festival it's a ski resort town here in utah and there was a guy there <clears throat> i remember it was walrus woodworks and he had his furniture there. And again, I was like 16 years old and I just looked at it and I thought, now that looks like a good way to make a living. And I grabbed his card and I kept that card in my wallet for probably, you know, 15 years. And, and it was just a constant reminder that, you know, I liked what that guy did. And ultimately that's what I did. And, and I have to say that, that he was probably the first one that, you know, directed me this way. Um, there was another guy. So after I got into woodworking, but I was very new at it. Um, I connected with a guy that restored antiques. I, I, I actually worked for a guy in a cabinet shop. I only stayed there about six months, but he was kind of a, adjacent to this, uh, antique restorer shop. Mm -hmm. And I used to go visit with him and we we became friends and he he would call on me a little bit for woodworking 
insight and his restorations. And in turn, he let me scour his shop and it was filled with the most amazing antique furniture. And we pulled drawers out and we, you know, get underneath things. And, and I just loved seeing the, the practicality and the utility of the antique furniture. And, and you could see the, I call it the fingerprint of the maker. You'd see the tool marks, you'd see the imperfections. And this gentleman's name was Carl Tim. And, you know, he was just clearly an inspiration to me. Um, You know, he, he was an artisan. He, he made his living finishing and restoring antiques. It's not really the direction I went, but in a, in a similar vein, but his kindness and, and giving me access to these amazing pieces of furniture was, was a real influence to me. So that, that card that you carried around in your wallet, did you ever contact that guy? You know, we never really, I know who he is. Um, okay. I think he's, he, he, he was a you know a bit older than me and um, I think he's still maybe around, but um, you know, we, we never really did um, interact. He, he is in Utah, um, lives kind of up in a mountain, uh, small mountain town. And, and I just didn't get up there much, mm-hmm. but no, um, I, in fact, I did some work for a client who had, had actually a lot of his work in their home too. Oh, no, that's cool. What, was there yeah. something particular about the style that attracted you? Was uh, it, was it just that he was making a living, making things? What, what was it? I, I think really at the time it was more, I mean, they, they were nice pieces. They were sort of European country, which, which is big up in the mountain, you know, towns, um, they're kind of, it's changed a little bit, but for years and years, they were just furnishing all those, you know, massive homes with a lot of this kind of custom European country furniture. And, uh, that's kind of what it was, but, but it was more just the nature of here's this guy producing this stuff. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's, it's a cool place to pull inspiration from. Yeah. And 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 in all, as much as I respect the the big names and you know what really got me going were you know just a, a couple close contacts. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that that's the stuff that really impacts you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for the fourth question, in terms of your woodworking, what has been your biggest stumbling block? And assuming you've worked through it, how could you have avoided it? Well, I would have to say finishing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, there's probably a bunch, but but I I would like to probably address finishing. Um, I don't love. In fact, I I really actually dread finishing, but it it sort of is part of the job. <laughs> um, it, 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 it's probably one of my least favorite parts of it, but, but nonetheless, it, it is a part of it. A lot of people farm, farm it out to other people, but I've always, for the most part, done my own. And I actually got pretty good at it. Um, but finishing is complex. It's technical. There's a, I mean, Diami was talking about his pore filling with the epoxy and sanding it back. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the finishing can be extremely technical and complex. Mm. 
um, compatibility of products. Um, and the biggest mistake, so you, you want to know stumbling blocks, right? Is it, mm-hmm. um, man, when I first started out, fortunately, there was a good, I'm going to say stripper, but we'll, we'll say finish remover. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't figure out that experimenting on a finish on your actual piece of furniture is not a good idea. <laughs> and, you know, I was just too naive to think that finishing was difficult. And so I'd get a piece done and, you know, I'd say, well, let's put a little of this on, let's put a little of this on. And before I know it, I'm taking the piece down to the, have the finish removed. And I swear that happened about every other piece. <clears throat> and then I sort of figured it out that no, what you really got to do is samples. <clears throat> and the samples that I do are actually pretty informative. Uh, I think a mistake a lot of people make is they just do a sample. Mm-hmm. In other words, it, you know, finishing can be complex. It can have uh, a wash coat. It can have an application of dye, an application of stain, pore filler, glazes. Um, but if you do the, all of that and all you have is a finish, you don't know what the piece looked like when you had the dye on there. Or, okay. And so what I do is I take a finished sample and I cut curves about every two inches up maybe a 20-inch board. It might be six inches wide, 20 inches long, and I put these curves maybe for the first 10 inches. And so then the whole board gets the first application and then I'll tape off that and the whole board gets the second application except for the section that was taped off. And so each progression of finish gets um, isolated from the whole. And so when I go to put the finish on the piece, I can look at what it looked like when it only had, say, the wash coat or when it had the first application of stain or die or whatever, because you can, you can really affect the um, end result by putting a, a, a more intense application of stain or dye. And if all you can see is the finished product, you can't really make those adjustments. So, right. you, you know, I, I actually got to where I, I never, I mean, I haven't been up to that finish remover for 20 years, you know, so <laughs> I, I did figure out, that and and so finishing was definitely a stumbling block block due to the complexity um you know just there's a lot that can go wrong um woodworking you know you got a little setback it seems you can always fix it but once the finish goes on the only repair is to remove it and start again (laughs) so i i've I've learned that you don't want to do that so take your time doing up samples show the clients or whoever you know what it's going to look like and and then through doing the sample, you've mixed up the stains for the ratio proportion, and, and it's just predict, predictable. Right, right. Yeah, that's the trick is to break it into small steps and understand what you are because you get three steps in, you're not sure what each step did and where, where you're going right or wrong. Yeah. Like pouring epoxy over something and then just removing most of the epoxy. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. It, it, it has been. Especially on such a big piece. It has been. But I don't don't know if you're familiar with Timberstrand. It's dimensional framing lumber made of OSB. Yeah. And it's got little pockets in it the way OSB does. 
So what I've done is ripped it into one in, one and a half inch by one and a half inch sections, rotated them all, and laminated them back together into a big board. So that yeah. what is essentially the edge grain is now the top. So it uh-huh. I like to refer to it as quarter saw and timber strand. Mm-hmm. And and just filled with holes. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah, the pieces. It's an entertainment center for my kids' playroom in the basement. These slabs are ultimately going to get dyed purple. Uh-huh. Um, and the reason I like the timber strand so much is the edge of each individual little flake of wood takes the dye differently, and it makes yeah. for a really rich color when you're all said and done. Uh, but I didn't want to have all the little pockets in it, so that's sure. what the epoxy was all for. Sounds neat. Really I neat. I eagerly await the the dye. <laughs> on, on the on the shelves. Well, the dye's the easy part. Like. I've done the dye so many times. I know how to do the dye. Yeah. It's the epoxy that I was figuring out. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it's working out for you. Anyway, back to Chris. Uh, the fifth and final question, uh, and this may be a, a bit of a different one for you, but uh, how has the in- internet influenced your work? If at all. Um, well, I'm sure it's in... You know, I'm sure it's been very influential. Um, I mean, I, I, although I'm not into social media and that kind of stuff, I, I do spend quite a bit of time on the internet. You know, looking at forums or just just um, learning, whether it's YouTube videos or whatever. I, I you know, I, I actually don't spend as much time reading the books and magazines. I, I spend more more time on the internet, learning learning the craft and things, and then you know, getting inspiration for designs and, you know, what good, you know, what builders are doing and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it, you know, like everyone else, it's, it changed the way we live mm. and I'm, I'm no exception to that. Um, I mean, that's what I do after my 15 hour days, I lay in bed for an hour, <laughs> 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 uh, surfing, the, surfing the web until I fall asleep. You know, well, that- it's actually, it's also, you know, talking to these hand tools that I have, you know, most of them come, I mean, a lot of them are antique and, you know, they're either from internet tool dealers or eBay. I mean, eBay has been amazing for, I mean, it's actually ruined some, I, I used to get a lot of my tools locally here at just a steal because nobody knew what they were or their value or anything like that. And with the internet, of course, and just a click of a button, you know what you have and what it's worth. And so those steals are gone, but mm-hmm. But the trade-off is that anytime you want something, it's there. Where this other, you know, when it was just locally available stuff, it, it could take a lifetime to find what you were looking for. So, you know, just access to, to tools um, is, is, you know, been a great part of the Internet. But, but also technique and know-how and just all that kind of stuff. Is, it's, I'm glad we have it. Yeah, I and mean, that's that's really good to hear. I mean, somebody that's been teaching for as long as you have, that you can still find what what the cool kids are doing nowadays, and put, <laughs> putting stuff up on YouTube and learning from it. I mean, yeah, or being no, inspired, yeah. or finding styles, yeah. or or, Abs- or trends, absolutely. or anything. I mean, yeah, that's really um, cool. I I try to stay current, and and there's there's a lot of good on the internet for sure. Yeah, as you mentioned uh, when we recorded earlier about mid-century modern being you know, something kind that you're, current, you're right. yeah, it's current. And I'm hearing more and more of that where it's, it's kind of the thing. Yeah. Um, not sure why it just it's beautiful, is beautiful, Sean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
it, it's an interesting style that is, yeah. you know, um, I mean, coming back, just like Bell well, did. And, and interesting, you know, I would say, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I would have to say that Krenov was really mid-century modern, you know, I mean. It, I think it, so. You know, and, and, and I've always liked his stuff. I mean, I, I don't do a lot that sort of mimics or resembles his stuff, but I've always respected what he's done. And, and in a sense, I think he he kept the mid-century movement going and then it's, it's come around again. I mean, it, it is funny how, you know, mission furniture, arts and crafts was the rage uh, mm-hmm. for the last, what, 30 years or so. Um, mm-hmm. And what followed arts and crafts furniture at the turn of the century was mid-century modern. And it, you know, so it, it's interesting how it, it comes around, you know, mm-hmm. and, and what'll be next? I don't know what followed mid-century modern. <laughs> A revival of uh, Art <laughs> So we're going to have to go back into French colonial, I think. Is what yeah, we're well, do. yeah, American, uh, you, you know, it, it's interesting. So it, it, it just keeps moving. And, and you kind of have to stay current with, with what's out there. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, Chris, again, thank you so much for coming on. We've had a great thank time talking with you, and I look forward to, uh, to seeing you again at Fine Woodworking Live. Yeah. Um, we'll, as, we'll, as of this recording, there are still tickets available. So if you haven't yet, I'd recommend you go to Fine Woodworking Live and, and check it out. It's a wonderful conference. And with that, uh, we're going to call it a night. Go in your shop and go make something. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you.